Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. We are in the fourth week of a series that we have titled in the form of a question, Who Am I? And in this series, we have been looking at some of the identity statements that Jesus makes about us in scriptures, all that start with the words, you are, you are. Uh, We've looked at two so far in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus tells us, you are the salt of the earth. And then he goes on to say in the next sentence, you are the light or the lanterns of the world. And then last week, we skipped ahead in the Gospel of Matthew to the 10th chapter, and we looked at our worth to God as we considered Jesus' statements that we are more valuable than sparrows. Um, If you missed any of those, you can check them out on our podcast. You can go to our YouTube channel, like and subscribe. And And we'd love to to seed those into your heart, and hopefully they bless you in in the process. Today, we are going to get into the fourth of these you are statements that Jesus makes about us. And for that, we need to migrate out of Matthew and jump into the book of John in the 15th chapter. Uh, If you have a Bible, you can turn there now. If not, fear not, they will show up on the screen. Um, But as we go to the text, I want to point something out that might uh, seem obvious to some in the room, especially if you were with us for our last series uh, where we discussed the statements Jesus made about himself in the book of John, the great I am, eight I am statements. Uh, And some of those were found in a portion of scripture that we are gonna be studying once again today. Uh, As a refresher, John chapter 15 finds us sitting at a dinner table with Jesus and these 12 men that he has spent the last three years walking with, working with, teaching, discipling. And it is in this dinner where he begins to share his heart in a very unique way in comparison to how he's spoken to them up until this point. He knows that he's about to be crucified and and handed over. And so he begins to share some parting words with all of these men that he loves. It is in this dinner table setting where he will break the bread And he will say, this bread represents my body, which will be broken for you. And from now on, when you take the Passover meal and you see this bread broken, I want you to remember me. Remember the fact that my physical body is going to be beaten and bloodied so that your physical bodies can be made whole. He'll later in the meal take a glass of wine and he'll hold it up and say, this this wine represents my blood, which will be spilled for you. And This blood represents a new covenant that's being established between God and people. No longer is your right standing with God based on your merit or your performance, but it's based on what I'm about to do on the cross. And you can come boldly before the throne of grace and receive mercy as a result of this new covenant. He'll go on to share later in the meal that he's going to be departing. He's going to be leaving them. But he says, don't worry, I'm going to prepare a place for you, a place in eternity for you to meet me one day. And and you already know the way to get there. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life that will get you to the Father. Also, even though I'm leaving, just so you know, I'm not leaving you alone because I'm going to send the Paracletos, the Holy Spirit, the one who will be with you and in you. And he'll walk with you and he'll guide you into all truth and he'll provide peace that surpasses understanding. And And then he goes on to say that although I'm leaving you and although I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, I still want you to remain in me. In John chapter 15, he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And if you remain in me and I in you, then you will bear much fruit. And it's on the heels of this viticulture language that Jesus begins to make now our fourth you are statement uh, in the book of John chapter 15, starting in verse 12. He says this. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way that I have loved you. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for his friends. 
And you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a slave doesn't know what his master's doing, but you are my friends for all things that I heard from my father I have now made known to you. You did not choose me. I picked you and I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. Twice now in these five verses, Jesus makes this statement. You are my friends. And as he makes this you are statement, he begins to describe a number of the benefits that we receive as a result of this friendship with him. And so to the end, in light of those, to that end, in light of those statements, um, I'm going to offer you a title. And uh, my wife told me as I shared this title with her that it proves I still identify as a junior hire from time to time instead of as a 40-year-old man, which I turned last week. But I feel that this title is entirely appropriate considering the words of Jesus here in this text. I want to call this sermon Friends with Benefits. I know it's, it's, it's not good, but I didn't want to go with like a lame, cheesy Christian title and, you know, go with some old songs that we used to sing in church. Uh, I am a friend of God. Anyone remember that song? I am a friend of God. No. Okay. Um, what a friend I found. No. Anyone there? Delirious. See, okay. This is how I know I'm in the right church. You guys don't know all the bad Christian music from a long time ago. You just got saved. So friends with benefits ministers to your soul. Cause it's, I get it. I get it. All right. <laughs> Friends with benefits. Let's pray and uh, repent. And then uh, we'll get into the word. Jesus, I love you. I know sometimes my titles do not show that, but I love you. And uh, God, I pray over the next couple of moments as we go to these words you shared with your disciples sitting around a table, uh, that they would not be kept in ancient scripture and uh, apart from our experience, but that today they would land on our hearts. That would be like us sitting at this table with you, receiving these same words in our modern context. Speak to us today. May we leave this place knowing that we are your friends because that's what you call us in Jesus name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Um, I think it probably goes without saying that every relationship you have, every friendship you have carries with it a certain set of benefits. All of your friends, regardless of who they are, what they do, each of them offers a unique benefit as a result of that relationship. Not that the benefit is the motivation for the relationship necessarily. Like no one wants to feel leveraged or used. Like the only reason you're friends with them is so you can get something out of the, the relationship. But nevertheless, every relationship you have, it carries with it some unique benefit. For example, if you are friends with somebody who works in the trades or who is particularly handy, then that friendship might benefit you in the way of some free labor or some discounted labor if you need something built or repaired at your house. Uh, if you are friends with somebody who is single, uh, that means that they're often available to hang out with you and they don't have to make any excuses about being with their spouse. Sorry, it's a good benefit. One of my best friends is single and he's always available to hang out with me. It's great. <laughs> Uh, if you're friends with somebody who works at a restaurant, a prestigious one, and you can't get reservations online, then perhaps the benefit there is that you can get reservations when no one else can, or maybe you get a free meal out of the deal. Uh, if you're friends with someone who works at Chase Arena or is friends with, uh, I would say the greatest basketball team, but it was a pitiful display of basketball this last week. <laughs> you stop right now. It's an ongoing conflict in our relationship. But perhaps that benefit is that you get discounted tickets or free tickets to a Dubs game. Uh, if you are friends with someone who is balling and happens to be generous, which is a great combination, by the way, 
then that friendship might result in some experiences. There's some trips that you wouldn't be able to afford by yourself. At the end of the day, all friendships come with benefits. And, and by the way, if any of those examples describe you, I would love to be your friend. Um, if you're looking for any new friends, just look no further than your boy right here. I wish I could offer you some benefit in return, but our closest friends just shared with me this last week that the only benefit they've discovered in friendship with me is excessive body weight and weight gain because of my love for dessert and fine wine. And so apparently uh, they're now unhealthy because they hang out with me. And I'm like, whatever, okay? I didn't want to be your friend anyway, but I can pray for you, all right? So if you want to be friends, give me tickets and I'll pray for you. It's a great exchange. We'll work it out, all right? It's good, it's good. But every friendship comes with some benefits. And as it is in the natural, so it is in the spirit. There is some benefit to being friends with the almighty God. I think that goes without saying. Not that the, the benefit is the motivation for relationship. None of us ever come to God simply because we want to get something from him. That is the wrong motivation for relationship. No, we are in relationship with God because he has already given to us everything that we could possibly need. He gave us salvation through the broken body and the death and resurrection of his son. And now everything we do is a response to something he has already given to us. But in his unmerited favor, he doesn't just offer us salvation. He offers us relationship. He offers us his friendship. And that friendship comes with a whole lot of benefits. In fact, the Bible speaks to many of them. There's thousands of scriptures that talk about the benefits of relationship with God. One, one psalm in and of itself, Psalm 103, David writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. He forgives all of my sin. He heals all of my diseases. He sets my feet on a, a rock. He rescues me from the pit. He crowns me with loving kindness. As far as the east is from the west, so he's removed my sin from me. And as high as the heavens are above the earth, his love stretches out towards me. There's some benefits. And that's just one psalm among thousands of scriptures that speak to the benefits of relationship with God. And that is essentially what Jesus is speaking about here in John chapter 15. He is relaying, he's, he's reminding us of some incredible benefits that are found in relationship with him as a friend. He starts off by saying one of the benefits is that as my friends, you'll have the ability to recognize and respond to the voice of God. He, he says, you are my friends because I have shared with you what the Father has already spoken to me. In other words, you have the ability to hear directly from heaven because of your relationship with me. If you find yourself in a situation where you don't know what decision to make or what job you're supposed to take, what school you're supposed to go to, whether you're supposed to date that person or not, probably not, then God will speak. He will share his heart with you and you don't have to live with confusion, vexed, what should I do next? Because as friends, God will speak to you and share his will with you. It's a benefit of friendship. He goes on to say that another benefit is that we have the ability to, to drop his name. Come on, how many know what a name drop is before? You drop a name, oh, well, let me pick that up real quick that you just drop. Yeah, a name drop is when you use somebody else's name to gain access or privilege that you would not have been able to, to gain by yourself because of your own name. You walk up to the, to the, to the doorkeeper, the security guard, or the hostess, and you're like, hey, um, Johnny sent me. And they're like, oh, Johnny, say, please come right this way. Why? Because you use someone else's name. They didn't know your name. They didn't care about your name. But because of that person's name, you gained access that you wouldn't have had otherwise. And Jesus says, once again, in John 15, hey, 
if you know me and we're friends, then you can go to the Father and ask for whatever you want in my name and it will be given to you. You can drop my name. It's not your name, it's my name that will result in this benefit. I don't want to offend anybody today, but it goes without saying according to Jesus. You might be a big deal here on earth. Maybe you're at the top of the food chain in your company or a lot of people report to you, but sorry, your name is not all that important in heaven. There are not angels circling the throne right now singing your name out. There are not demons that bow down to the authority of your name. They don't hear Dave or Debbie or Donald or Dante or any other D name and go, oh, shuddering in fear because of the authority of your name. It's just not happening like that in the heavens. Your name does not usher you past the gates and past the courts and into the throne room of the almighty God so that you can sit at the foot of the Father and ask for mercy. Your name doesn't do that. There is only one name that grants us access, only one name that causes demons to shudder in fear, one name that everyone bows down to, and it is the name of Jesus Christ and him alone. Come on, you know the scriptures, Philippians chapter two. God gave him a name that is above every other name, that at the mention of the name of Jesus, every knee will bow above the earth, on the earth, and below the earth, and confess that he is Lord. Acts chapter four. There is no other name whereby men can be saved but the name of Jesus. First Corinthians chapter six. It is the name of Jesus that washes us and cleanses us and purifies us from all sin. Proverbs 18, the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous can run to it and they will be saved because of that name. There's no name like Jesus. Come on, let me preach at you for a second. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the captain of the Lord's armies. He's the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the great I am. There is no one like the name of Jesus. And as if we've won some kind of spiritual lottery, he says, you can use my name. You can drop my name and experience all of the power and privilege that is associated because of this friendship. But there is another benefit that Jesus lists here in John chapter 15 that I believe eclipses all of the other benefits he's mentioned. Benefit that I would like to spend the next 20 minutes and 58 seconds talking about if I could. And if I could distill it down into a single word, it is this. It's the benefit of freedom. The benefit of freedom that is found in friendship. Look at what he says in the 15th verse. He says, I no longer call you slaves because a slave doesn't know what his master's doing, but you are my friends. I no longer call you a slave. I call you my friends. Jesus is using language here, intentionally contrasting the reality between slaves and masters versus friendship. And, and he's suggesting that this friendship with him, it liberates, it emancipates us from this thing he calls slavery. Now, to be clear, Jesus is not speaking about slavery in the literal sense that we would understand it in our context. Although I think it needs to be said that a true conviction of faith and a right division of scripture has always and continues to lead to the liberation of slaves throughout history. And if people were all to truly come to the saving knowledge of Jesus, we would not have or currently struggle with all the issues that we struggle with across our nation and beyond as a result of the gospel. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here because we, he's not talking to slaves. He's talking to free men who have of their own volition made a decision to follow him. So we know that's not what he's speaking of here. 
We also know, based on the context of his, his comments, that he's not speaking to a reality that Scripture often references called a slavery to sin. Often in Scripture, this struggle that man faces with sin is referred to as a form of slavery. Although, again, it needs to be noted that relationship with God and friendship with Jesus does lead, in fact, to liberation from the power of sin and death in our lives. And there is such a thing as walking free from sin because of the relationship that we have with Jesus. It says in Romans chapter 6, what then shall we do? Shall we continue to sin so that God's grace can, uh, can expound all the more? Certainly not. No, you already lost that power when you were buried in the waters of baptism and you resurrected to new life in Christ. So sin does not hold you any longer. You are now the property of Jesus and you are governed by the Holy Spirit. So yes, you have been set free from the power of sin and death. But again, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. It's not literal slavery. It's not slavery to sin. Rather, what Jesus is reference here, referencing here in these statements is a form of spiritual slavery that was alive and well in his day and still exists in ours quite prominently in the church. A form of spiritual slavery that masquerades itself as religion void of relationship. A form of slavery that causes humanity to interact with God in a way that looks far more like a slave and a master than it does to friends. I apologize if this is an awkward moment or if this feels tone deaf in our current day and age, but sometimes scripture speaks about things that make us uncomfortable and Jesus used this analogy. So we're gonna use this analogy because if we truly wanna understand what he's speaking of, we need to look at the terms he's using here and explore why he would use such references in trying to display friendship versus slavery. So let's embrace the awkward for, awkwardness for a moment and let's, let's consider these statements. Think about how a slave might interact with a master, the dynamic of that relationship. Obviously, in, in a slave-master relationship, there, there is, there's no choice. There's, there's no active will involved. The master can force a slave to do whatever he wants them to do against their will, and the slave just has to do it. Also, in a slave-master relationship, the only real motivation is fear. They don't want to be punished by the master, and there's no relational equity to draw on, no questions asked, just a fear of punishment if you do not do exactly what the master asks you to do. In fact, it could be said that the only benefit a slave would ever expect to receive is the benefit of not being punished by the master for failing to do what the master asked them to do. There's no joy. There's no inheritance. There's no peace, no confidence. That, those are things reserved for friends and family members, but not for a slave. And yet, despite the miserable nature of that relationship, it seems to describe the way that many people interact with God. It seems to describe the relationship that many people have with God because of dead religion, void of relationship. One that looks more closely like a slave-master relationship than two friends. To many people, God is not a father to be loved or a friend to be pursued. He's a harsh, demanding master with a club called the Bible that he uses to beat his people into submission. And because that's the viewpoint that many people have about God, 
Their only motivation for obedience is fear. They're motivated to, to do the right thing and, and, and keep, keep all the rules because if they don't, then there might be punishment on the other side of that. And so because of fear, they obey, but it's never love, it's never joy. It's only a desire to see if my good can outweigh my bad and if I can color within the line so that hopefully one day if I do good enough on earth, I can end up in heaven with God. That is the plight of dead religion, a performance-based reality where we try to appease God, but man, we never truly enter into friendship with him. And even as I say that, I can see heads nodding around the room because maybe that has been your experience. Maybe that's the background you come from. The baptism in the first service shared coming from a Catholic background and just following all the rules, but there was no relationship with Jesus. Maybe that's the place you come from where the only version of God that was peddled from a stage is a version of God that is angry, forcing you to obey, but there is no relationship with a loving father. But whether that is your present experience or it's been your past experience, I believe that Jesus has come today to reverse that experience once and for all and to preach to you once again the gospel according to him. Listen, the good news of the gospel is not that Jesus came and was beaten bloody beyond recognition and nailed to a cross so that you could stay at a distance from the Father and serve him like some humble slave. No, the good news of the gospel is that you have been liberated from dead religion, that you've been set free from the brokenness of your past, and that you are now free to serve God with your whole heart through relationship. Galatians 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. So don't be yoked up again to slavery. Don't go back to that dead religious mindset. I love what it says in Romans chapter 8. That God did not give us the spirit, the mindset, the, the, the personality of a fearful slave that stays at a distance, but he gave us his own spirit that cries out to him, Abba, Father. It's a relational term. And Jesus says the same thing here in John 15. I don't call you a slave. I call you my friends. Friendship with God. Relationship, not religion. I am. I'm trying. <laughs> Rabbi, that's a fun term. <laughs> Getting a name tag. But here's the thing about relationship. Here's the thing about friendship. Friendship is a two-way street. It's dysfunctional if only one friend is friendly. <laughs> that's not true relationship. And the only way to enjoy the benefits of friendship is to respond, to engage, to accept the invitation to friendship. And so what I'd like to do, which I like to do every single week, is to pose a question to you and force you to consider whether this is a relationship that you have truly accepted or if all of your doings are still a lot like a slave and not so much like a friend. So here's the question I pose to us for consideration. Why do you do what you do. Why do you do what you do? Or if you prefer the Michael Scott, Toby, why are you the way that you are? <laughs> Seriously, just let's, let's chew on this for a moment. Why do you do what you do? Why do you come to church? Why do you pray? Why do you read the Bible? Why do you serve? Why do you give a tenth of your income to God? Assuming you do these things, why? Do you do them because you're afraid that if you don't, God will be angry with you? 
Are you afraid if you don't that there's some form of pent-up punishment waiting for you? He'll withhold blessing from you? Do you do these things because you feel like God's got some metric system in heaven where he's lining up your good against your bad to see if they outweigh one another and if you do enough good, you'll end up in heaven? Do do you do these things because they're tradition? Well, my family always did this. I grew up in church and so that's just what I do. I come to church and I serve and and I do good things for the community. Do you do them out of a sense of obligation where oh, I don't desire to do any of this, but you know, I'm going to grit it out and I'm just going to, I'm obligated to do these things because that's what good Christians do. What's your motive for all of the things that you do? Because a friend is not motivated by obligation. A friend is moved by love. A friend never feels like they have to perform to get the approval of their other friend. A friend rests in the confidence of relationship. And a friend never operates based on obligation or duty. It's always desire. I want to. I get to. I enjoy this. Not because I have to. It's I desire to. So why do you do the things that you do? Why are you the way that you are? Because if it's shame or guilt or fear or obligation or any of those other things, and I hate to break it to you, but that is slave behavior. That is not how a friend interacts with another friend. And if you find yourself here today embracing any of those slave-like ways, then what I'd like to do in our remaining moments together is to give you a couple of options, a couple of responses to that revelation. The first of which might not sound very pastoral, but I offer it to you nonetheless. Option number one, if you're doing things like this, coming to church, giving, serving, out of obligation, out of fear, just stop. Just quit. Go on push pay right now. Tell them, I don't want to give my money to the Father's house anymore. Get off the team for serving. Stop showing up on Sunday mornings. Not because I'm ticked off at you and I'm like, you're dead to me. No, that's not it at all. (laughs) But because you're wasting your time. If, if this is all obligation or fear, or shame-based ways of serving God, then you've bought into a version of dead religion that brings no life and you are just wasting your time. Unless the motivation is love, don't do it. In fact, not to put words in Jesus' mouth, but I think he would offer the same option to you this morning. This entire conversation in John 15, it is bookended by love. He says, if you love me, obey my commandments. Obey my commandments to love one another. And then he ends the whole thing by saying, obey my command to love. This is all about love. So if love is not the central motivation, if it's not, I love God, I desire to be around God, I want to be in his word so that I can grow in the things of God, I want to pray so that I can be near to him in relationship. If it's not love, then don't do it. Because if you're doing it for any other reason, you are buying into perhaps one of the greatest forms of deception on planet earth. Dead religion always offers deception and it's the deception that everything is good between you and God when in fact it is not. I think one of the most terrifying scriptures in the whole Bible is Matthew chapter seven where Jesus says that there's a lot of people who go to church every Sunday, drive the minivans, listen to Caleb, put the fish on the back of the car and they're gonna walk before him in eternity for, for judgment day, clinging to their dead religion and all the good deeds that they did and all the Christian behavior that they lived by 
expecting to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. But instead, Jesus looks at them and he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. We were never friends. We were never in relationship with one another. You bought into a form of dead religion that deceived you. But what I really wanted was your heart all along. So, man, if your motivations are wrong, just stop. Quit coming to church. Go to brunch. <laughs> and enjoy the days that you have here on earth because that's where the enjoyment ends. Or I offer a second option. <laughs> Far more advantageous one <laughs> based on the way the room felt when I said that a second ago. Option number two, if you have bought into a form of dead religion is void of relationship, then I think Jesus would offer you an exchange today. A trading in of your slavery to dead religion for a friendship with him. A friendship that according to Jesus, he was willing to even give his life to offer up to you. What did he say? He said, I no longer call you slaves, but I call you friends. And a friend shows no greater love than this, but to offer up his life in exchange. This was not poetic language. This was not a figure of speech. This is a reality that Jesus would live out just a few hours after he made these statements at the Last Supper to prove once and for all that an exchange is available for every slave who wants to become a friend of God. Let me prove it. Exodus chapter 21. Moses is relaying the law of God to the people of God. He has shared with them the Ten Commandments. And he's told them about the appropriate ways to offer sacrifices up to God. And he's even gotten into the interpersonal relationship stuff. Like, here's how we're supposed to treat one another as people of God. But in the midst of this dissemination of commandments and information, he makes a rather peculiar statement about slaves that we don't fully understand until we get into the narrative of Jesus. Exodus chapter 21, verse uh, 32 says this. But if the ox kills a slave, either male or female, the animal's owner must pay the slave's owner 30 silver coins, and the ox must be stoned. According to Jewish law, there was a value placed on the life of a slave. The market value of a slave was 30 pieces of silver. If a slave's life needed to be redeemed, be bought back, be paid for, it would cost 30 pieces of silver. Fast forward, Matthew chapter 26. Judas comes to the leading priests, the religious leaders. He says, what will you give me if I hand over this Jesus to you? What will you give me if I, I trade in this Messiah, the savior of the world? What kind of compensation are we talking about here? The, the priests confer with one another and they come back and they say, Judas, for this Jesus, we offer you 30 pieces of silver. We, we offer you the same value that would be placed on the life of a slave. To us, he's worth no more than a slave. What say you, Judas? Judas says, sounds great. 
takes the money, puts it in his pocket. And then Judas walks out of the temple and he makes his way to a dinner party. The same dinner party where Jesus will say, you are no longer slaves. You are my friends. And there is no greater love than a friend would lay down his life for another. After dinner, Jesus will bring his remaining disciples to the Mount of Olives, a familiar place where he would pray. And he'll look at his disciples and say, the weight of what I'm about to endure is heavy on me and I need you to pray with me, intercede with me. But three times his disciples fall asleep in the garden. He kicks him and he wakes him up. Don't, did you remember? Pray, come on. If this was a party, you guys would be out all night long just enjoying yourselves, but you can't pray for like a little bit, just pray. So they pray and they fall asleep again three separate times. Finally, Jesus says, go ahead and sleep. But look, the time of my judgment is coming. The son of man is about to be handed over to sinners. And suddenly, Judas shows back up on the scene. Matthew chapter 26. And with this, I'll invite the worship team to come as we prepare to close. But Matthew 26, verse 47 says, and even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They'd been sent by the leading priests and elders of the people. The traitor, Judas, had given them a prearranged signal. You will know the one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. So Judas came straight up to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi, he exclaimed, and he gave Jesus this kiss. And Jesus said, my friend. My friend, my friend, do what you have come to do. We are witnessing perhaps the greatest sin in human history. Not that God grades on a scale, but if he did, this guy just handed over the Messiah. He handed over Jesus, the savior of the world, for a slave's fee. This is the same Jesus that walked with him for the last three years and invited Judas into his inner circle and said, I'll, I'll protect you and I'll love you and I'll provide for you and you have access that not everybody else is granted, a position that any of us would long to be in. And the repayment that Judas gives to this Jesus is to sell him off like a slave. And yet in the face of betrayal, Jesus does not look at the traitor and say, how could you? After all I did for you, I invited you in. I showed you love. I provided for your needs. I protected you. This is how you repay me? 30 pieces of silver? A slave? do this to me, Judas. That's not what Jesus says. In the face of betrayal, Jesus looks at Judas and he says, my friend, do what you have come to do. My friend. As if to say, Judas, I knew this was going to happen. It's not a surprise to me. I'm not offended by your actions. I'm not angry with you because you turned your back on me. 
Humanity has been turning their back on God since the beginning. This is not new, Judas. But despite your failure, despite your betrayal, I look you in the eye and I don't call you what you think I would call you. I call you my friend because there is no greater love than one would lay down their life for a friend. So Judas, let him have me. Let him, let him pay for me at the cost of a slave because what you don't realize in this moment is this is much bigger than you, Judas. This is a lot bigger than this moment. There will be generations that come after you, even one sitting in a room on a Sunday morning in San Francisco on Mother's Day who need to be reminded of the fact that I don't look them in the face and say, I'm disappointed in you, I'm angry with you, how could you? I just gave my life for you and, and you walked away. No, they would stare me in the eyes and I would say, you are still my friend because there's no greater love that I have for any person than to lay my life down in exchange. Let him have me, Judas, because unless I become a slave, nobody will ever be able to become my friend. That's the exchange. And that's the invitation that I think Jesus would make to anyone in the room today who needs to receive it. Not an invitation to sign up for a religion where you follow the rules and try harder to do better and grit it out until you get to heaven. Not even an invitation to live a perfect life because my friend, let me tell you, you will find yourself in a garden with Jesus time and time again, where your lifestyle has been nothing but betrayal, but even in failure, he will look you in the eye and still call you his friend. Now the invitation is simple, to make an exchange, to trade in that dead religious slavery for true friendship with God. And guess what? As the title suggests, there's some bennies if you get into friendship with Jesus. There's some joy, there's some blessing, there's some protection, there's some healing, there's some clarity, there's some purpose. Everything you desire is on the other side of that relationship. And at the top of that list is a denial of dead religion and a true friendship with the one who created you. That's the invitation today. Let me pray for us as, as we conclude. Father, may the invitation right now be strong in this room. Not an invitation from a man on stage, but an invitation of the Holy Spirit to enter into true relationship. I pray right now for every heart to be soft, and eyes and hearts to be open. Anyone in here who's come from a background or is currently engaging in just that dead religious day after day, rule after rule, I have to, I have to, I have to, just right now, like reach out your hand in the spirit and just offer them your friendship. In fact, even as I, I say that, if you're here this morning and you say, Tim, uh, I am one of those who's, who's gone through the motions. In fact, that's the way I thought about church. It's the way I thought about God, that this was just a, a religion that, of rules and that doesn't sound exciting to me. I did not know that there was a relationship available to me or maybe you've run from God and you're outside of relationship. Your broken relationship is all you've got to offer right now. And you know that you need to come back and enter into friendship with him. I'm gonna make a, a moment right now for you to pray a prayer of commitment along with me and enter back into that friendship with him. But as we do that, no one's looking around, everyone's got their head bowed. But 
If you say, Tim, I need to join you in that prayer and get things right with Jesus today, would you just quickly slip up a hand and look at me and say, I'm praying with you today, Tim. Thank you, got you right there, ma'am. Yeah, I got you over there, awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I got you up there, right on, bro. Yeah, right on, man. Yeah, very cool. Anybody else? Awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for being bold. All right, here's what we're going to do. You guys know how we do it around here. We don't like these guys praying alone. We're going to all join them as they make this declaration to their new friend. Everyone repeat after me. Say, Jesus, today I give you my life. I thank you for giving yours for mine. I choose to follow you, to be your friend. Forgive me of my sin and help me to be your disciple from this day forward until I see you in eternity and you say, well done, in Jesus' name. Come on, let's celebrate every person making that decision this morning. That's awesome. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we wanna pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.